And Adam, it is my purpose at this moment to remember to ask your blessed mother-in-law to come make an announcement, but we'll do that right after the Gloria Patri. I am relying utterly on you to help me remember that, okay? Gloria, that'll be your spot. All right. John 17, I know you just sat, but let's turn to John 17. We'll read just the first five verses. John 17, verses 1 through 5, and I'll open with prayer as we approach this blessed, glorious chapter. Let's stand together. These things Jesus spoke and lifting up his eyes to heaven said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee, even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Blessed Father, we praise and thank you for gifting us through your Spirit with this record of the prayer of thy beloved Son that he made to thee on the night that he was betrayed. We are stunned by it, Lord, baffled by the depth of intimacy we sense between the two of you, and it speaks to us it speaks to us of your love, of your relationality, of the fact that you are a God that tenderly and affectionately loves us and yet cannot abide sin. So we thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus to be the solution to this, our desperate plight, that he would be made sin for us that we would be made his righteousness, clothed with his righteousness. We praise you. Now illumine our minds, and Spirit of God, touch and illumine our hearts this day, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I do want to initially say thank you to all of you. We have moved, or in the words of Inspector Clouseau, we have moved. We are now at a new location, and praise God for the help of the church through gifting us with help on the moving that took place Thursday to multiple persons assisting, and especially a daughter and son-in-law. It's been wonderful. Tammy and I love it. Amen? Amen. All right. Glorify thou me together with thyself, Father. 
Here this Lord's Day of Divine Worship, we enter into the inner sanctum. Truly the words Yahweh spoke to Moses at the burning bush speak here as well. The place on which you stand is holy ground. We might liken it to that sacred once-a-year scene when the high priest would enter behind the veil into the Holy of Holies, there to make intercession through blood upon and before the mercy seat overshadowed by the cherubim. Our text, of which we are only considering the first five of 26 verses, is typically known as Christ's high priestly prayer. This draws attention to the solemnity of consecration with which Christ Jesus anticipates the cross as the climax of his earthly priestly work. Spoken as it is in the shadow of the cross, John 17 has a particular, peculiar solemnity. And very often this prayer is understood as though it were gloomy. It is not. It is uttered by one who has just affirmed that he has overcome the world. That's the end of 16. And it starts from that conviction. Yes, Jesus is anticipating the cross, but it is with certain hope and joy. And this prayer marks the end of Jesus' earthly ministry while looking forward to the ongoing work that would not be the responsibility first of the immediate disciples and then also those who would later, like we, trust in him through their words. Jesus prays for us all. Now the prayer... It's difficult to subdivide because there is a beautiful unity in this prayer. In this prayer, in this prayer, God prays to God. Take that to your first, second, and third Sunday school class. In this prayer, God prays to God. God the Son prays to God the Father. His Father. So here is profound insight into the mystery of divine personality. How do they relate together with each other? Here also is contemplative guidance for our own prayers. Reverence, solemnity, absolute trust and hope expressions of love, and, yes, joy. In verses 1 through 5, it can be broken into three parts, I think, many suggest. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays about himself in relation to the Father. In verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his band of disciples. And then in verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for those who will believe through them. 
My purpose today is to give explanation of but these five verses, yet with some doctrine and application sprinkled, and then final profound doctrine that we see here. And I pray application that will bless you in your personal walk with the Father through the Son. 17.1 This part of the prayer is said to be his prayer for himself. And what he requests is that the Father would glorify him so that he, the Son, might glorify the Father. But let us think clearly here. For while Jesus is praying for himself and his glory by the Father, he's speaking immediately of the cross. Jesus is praying that his Father's will be done in and upon him. We should be clear that there is no self-seeking in this prayer. He was utterly about us and the Father's glory. Look at Hebrews 10, 5 through 12 with me. Hebrews 10, 5 through 12. We read from the second chapter where the prediction is made from Psalms 40 that the Son would one day proclaim the Father's praise in the midst of the congregation. And this happens at every preaching of God's word. But Hebrews 10, 5 through 12. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. A body thou hast prepared in the womb of Mary. By whom? By the Holy Spirit. God sent the Holy Spirit to Mary to prepare a body for the eternal, beloved, begotten Son of God. A body hast thou prepared for me. Verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do thy will, O God. 10. By which will, by that will, the God the Father's will, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body that was prepared for him of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. There's a remarkable contrast made in this scripture between the Aaronic priesthood's repeated multiple offering of sacrifice again and again and again, which the writer of Hebrews says only showed or should have shown that the sacrifices being offered were not sufficient. But Christ was sent once for all 
to offer sacrifice on the cross. It is finished. Done. No further sacrifice. Now the analogy in our day is that Roman Catholicism presents a picture in which Christ is re-sacrificed in every Mass repeatedly again and again and again, which flows square in the face of the biblical teaching that there was one sacrifice made once for all. He is not re-sacrificed again. It has been done. So, this wondrous reality of the gospel is the very thing that Jesus prays about in John 17. 10, 5 through 9 is what Jesus prays about in John 17. Jesus prays saying, Father, the hour has come because although by miracles and all manner of supernatural events, he had manifested himself to be the Son of God, yet his spiritual kingdom was still in obscurity. Pilate says, are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? So it was still in obscurity, but would soon afterwards shine with full brightness. And if it be objected that never was there anything less glorious than the death of Christ, which was at hand, I quote Calvin, I reply that in that death we behold a magnificent triumph which is concealed from wicked men. For there we perceive that atonement having been made for sin, the world has been reconciled to God, the curse has been blotted out, and Satan has been vanquished. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Verse 1 is also remarkable in that it records Jesus lifting up his eyes to heaven. Body posture important in prayer? You bet it is. What posture is the Pharisee in, in the temple? Nose in the air. What posture is the publican in? He will not even look up. But here... By this attitude, Christ testified that in the affections of his mind, catch that phrase, Christ testified that in the affections of his mind, he was rather in heaven than on earth, so that leaving men behind him, he converses familiarly with God. He looks towards heaven, not as if God's presence were confined to heaven, confined to heaven, for he filleth also the earth, but because it is there chiefly that his majesty is displayed. Catch that phrase. It's significant. His affections were rather in heaven than on earth. Well, he says, glorify thy son, that the son may glorify thee. What's this word, glory? 
I meant to bring, it would have been wonderful, a particular stone from the shores of Lake Superior. It's a piece of granite, uh, fills my hand full, perfectly smoothed into an oval shape by the work of the waves, and it's heavy. That's the concept of glory, particularly the Hebrew word for glory, meaning weight or value, weightiness, gravitas. We might say of someone that they, there is weight in their words or weight in what they say. This is the concept behind glory. And Christ is asking his Father to advance his beauty, his glory, his character, indeed, the wonder of divine personality in all its austerity and awe and yet tenderness and love. Wow. Mercy and wrath have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Psalms 85. That God might show himself both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 3.26. Just wrath. Justifier of sinners. Tender affection. They both meet at the cross, and they meet in Christ's prayer here. <laughs> verse 2, look at verse 2. Observe that verse 2 is a continuation of verses, verse 1's focus on glory and specifies that the giving of eternal life to people is the outworking of the glory Christ speaks of. Christ says here in verse 2 that the Father gave him authority, power over all mankind, the Greek is flesh, that to all whom the Father gave to the Son, he, the Son, may give them eternal life. Catch that. Let that weigh on you, that to all whom the Father gave to the Son, God the Father gave Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, authority when he appointed him to be king and head. Observe the focus that it is God the Father giving the man, the one like a son of man who was presented before him, Daniel 7 giving the man, Jesus Christ, giving him authority as a man, as the man over all flesh. Wow. Calvin. Christ does not say that he has been made governor over the whole world in order to bestow life on all without any distinction. But he limits this grace to those who have been given to him. But how were they given to him? For the father, the father has subjected to him the reprobate. 
that's scriptural, it's Calvin too. Calvin again, I reply, it is only the elect who belong to his peculiar flock, which he has undertaken to guard as a shepherd. So then the kingdom of Christ extends, no doubt, to all men, but it brings salvation to none but the elect, who with voluntary obedience follow the voice of their shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and we follow. For the others are compelled by violence to obey him, till at length he utterly bruised them with his rod of iron. Psalms 2. Application, perverse 2. Application, perverse 2. You, if you are a child of God, you were chosen by the Father before the foundations of the world were laid as a love gift from the Father to his Son. And that undergirds everything preached by Pastor Adrian two weeks ago and by me last week. This is the doctrinal reality and truth that undergirds who we are in Christ, undergirds for the Father tenderly affectionates you, has tender affection for you. John 16, 27. And biblical counseling will factor this heavy into conversations because the reality that I am a love gift by the Father to the Son radically impacts my view of myself, my self-image, my view of temptation, my view of sanctification. This is a game changer. If you are a child of God, most fundamentally, you are a gift from the Father to his beloved Son. How should that change the way I think and feel? Before the creation of the world, the Father purposed the gift of me to his Son as a love gift. Do you deny it? The scripture here would be hard to challenge. So what's with my depression? I'm a love gift from the Father to the, what's with my depression. What's with my cranky attitude? What's with my grumbling and bemoaning my life? I'm a love gift from the Father to the Son. The problem with us is that we are almost entirely horizontal in our thinking. Very little vertical. And that radically impacts on your happiness, sorrow, quotients, heavily. 
Verse 3. Verse 3 is Christ's definition of what he meant by the eternal life, which he gives to those gifted him by the Father. And his words specific, this is eternal life, that they may know thee and me. That's the context, that they may know thee and me. Listen to one commentator's astute thoughts. Some would suggest that the ultimate purpose of the coming of the Holy Spirit was to persuade us of the truth of an orthodox formula. That'd be like being able to come here second Sunday of each month and recite from memory the Nicene Creed. But do you love him? And do you feel his tender affection for you? Listen, the demons can recite the Nicene Creed. Satan knows scripture better than any of us. The question is, do I know him? Do I love him? Well, the commentator goes on to say, orthodox formula, that is mere thoughtlessness. If a man once knows the spirit within him, the source of all his aspiration after holiness, when you are being tempted and suddenly you don't want the temptation and you desire to be obedient and you find yourself praying to be obedient, that's the spirit within you pulling you towards holiness. And if he knows this spirit of Jesus Christ within himself as none other than the spirit of the eternal and almighty God, what more can he want? What more can he want? This is the eternal life. The definition of eternal life Jesus gives here is important because it differentiates itself from the current concept of endless existence. Hmm. Some Christians are like those who would argue that a wax museum is what life is all about. And they cannot imagine the wonder of dancing, of singing, and leaping, and smiling, and laughing, and talking, and endless joy in relational dances all emanating from and harmonious with the great eternal intra-Trinitarian dance of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Eternal life, praise God, is not a wax museum on top of a cloud. <laughs> Eternal life is the joy that will exist in heaven forever. What many of us think of heaven forever is what the wax would imagine life to be if they could think. Hmm. Exegetically, Consider one bit of insight in these first five verses with the whole chapter two, that the faith trust word group, it comes out as a noun, it comes out as a verb. The faith trust word group, John uses 98 times in the gospel, but always in the verb form. You remember that? 
So that faith or trust in John's gospel is pictured as a verbal action movement towards in pursuit of Jesus. He does not speak of the faith that comes in 1 John. He's talking to those who need to believe, not to those who have believed. But in chapter 17, the faith word, faith trust word group appears only three times. Only three times. In a book heavily saturated 98 times with this faith trust word group cluster. You would expect the 17th chapter of all would have a weightiness, but just three, just three. On the other hand, knowing or to know word group in John chapter 17, he uses seven times. 17.4, he says, I have accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. Christ here declares that he has completed the whole course of his calling. Do you remember Hebrews 10? Behold, I have come to do thy will, O God, a body thou hast prepared for me. He has accomplished almost wholly the course of his calling. The next step is being received into the heavenly glory as the one like a son of man figure from Daniel 7. But consider just a few passages from John's gospel. If your Bible is open, you can fly fast with me. 118, 118. His perception, self-perception of completing or fulfilling what the Father had given him to do. In 118, we are told that the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The Greek word is exegeted him. We get our word exegesis or exegetical from this word. That Jesus was the exegetical explanation of the Father. In 2.13, he cleanses his father's temple. My father's house shall be. In 7.16, he says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. In 8.28 and 9, I speak these things as the father has taught me. I, I always do the things that please him. 12, 49 through 50. I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say, what to speak, and therefore the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Brothers and sisters, clear in the self-perception of the Son is that he was accomplishing his father's will for him. He was teaching what his father had given to him, to him to teach. He was exegeting, showing in a theatrical display the father's great heart for sinners because Philip or Thomas, forget, 
If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Wow. Jesus had a clear knowledge of the eternal relationship he, God the Son, had with God the Father in a face-to-face -face relationship in the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit, an eternal intra-Trinitarian relational dance of joy. <laughs> and Christ desires to be glorified with the Father, that upon being received into heaven, he may give a magnificent display of his greatness and power at which every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now listen very carefully to the depth of Calvin's words here on the fifth verse. Christ now declares that he desires nothing that does not strictly belong to him, but only that he may appear in the flesh, such as he was before the creation of the world. Do you get that? The prayer is he knew of the glory that he had had as the second person of the Godhead, of the Trinity, as God the Son, the glory that he had had with the Father from eternity past. But he is now not just God, he is also man. And as a man, he is asking that that same glory that he had had with the Father before the incarnation be returned and manifested through him as he is presented before the Ancient of Days, Daniel 7. And to him is given a kingdom and authority and power, one that will never and wow. Well, Calvin continues, or to speak more plainly, that the divine majesty which he had always possessed may not be illustriously, may now be illustriously displayed in the person of the mediator, in the human flesh with which he was now clothed. Do you get that? that God the Son is now a man also forever on our behalf. The second person of the Godhead is now flesh also forever on our behalf. Behalf. This is a, Calvin, remarkable passage which teaches us that Christ is not a God newly contrived or who has existed only for a time. For if his glory was eternal, himself also has always been. Bad English, maybe, but boy, it gets it. What? Glorious joy that here just, if you count verses, chapter 18, verse 1, is the arrest. 
that just before his arrest, crucifixion, and death, Jesus is praying the Father to glorify him, the Son, with the same glory he had with the Father before the world was. And he prays, glorify thou me, together with thyself, Father. He could have prayed, glorify thou me, Father. But he said, glorify thou me with thyself, Father. Relationality. The Father and the Son in an eternal gaze of love, bonded by the personification of love, the Holy Spirit, the third divine person. Doctrine. First, observe the centrality or primacy of God's glory. It rather strikes you, doesn't it, from John 17. The centrality or primacy of God's glory. The first shorter catechism question is, what is the chief end of man? And the thunderous answer from the audience is, man's chief end Was that an angel or was that thunder? <laughs> yes, man's chief end is to glorify God. The Hebrew kabod means weight. The Greek word doxa is why we have our song doxology. It's where the word comes from, glory. And this tight sentence from Unger's Bible Dictionary his glory is the manifestation of his divine attributes and perfections or such a visible effulgence as indicates the possession and presence of these. That could not be said tighter, and it is beautiful and perfect theology. This is God's glory, the manifestation of his divine attributes and perfections, either invisible effulgence as around his throne, Ezekiel 1 and 10, or around his throne, Revelation 4, or in the person of the God-man washing the disciples' feet, his attributes and perfections are being manifested. In 17, look at verse 5 with me, because we'll look at two others there. 5, now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Go to 22. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one. 24. Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, 
which thou hast given me, for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. There is an infinite depth of joy which the redeemed will continually experience new depth after new depth, new heights, new vistas forever in his blessed, blessed presence. Contemplate him now. Seek to glorify him now. Ask him how. Might I glorify you this day? First doctrine, the centrality or primacy of God's glory. Second doctrine, the primacy of the Father. The primacy of the Father. Where the three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, are mentioned by Scripture in connection, as in baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, they are usually mentioned as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and not in reverse order. In all allusions to the properties and relations of the three, the Father is always spoken of, example, the word Father. He's always spoken of by some term or trait implying primary rank, and the other two by some implying secondariness. As Christ is his son, the Father is not Christ's son. As the Holy Spirit is his spirit, as Christ and the Spirit are sent, they do not send the Father. And in their working, there is always a sort of reference to the Father's being primary, directing their operation. John 17 classically illustrates this as you read it. You cannot but see the primacy of the Father in everything Christ spoke and said, the will he obeyed, the work he accomplished, both perfect righteousness achieved and passive righteousness submitted to at the cross. Third doctrine, the glorious wonders of the Incarnation, as seen in John 17. That Jesus, the man, a man, would make request of the eternal Father, God, that he, the Father, would glorify Jesus with himself with the same glory that they had shared before the creation of Genesis 1. And that the eternally uncreated God the Son, who was now become also man, is to be taken back as a man into the immediacy of the Father's presence in the, the same glory and honor and power and praise that has existed for eternity within the fellowship of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Hmm. Wonders of God with us. Application. First, my salvation eternal in paradise 
in the presence of God the Father and in the physical presence of God the Son, Jesus, and with the eternal blessed presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling, all of this is a much bigger thing to God than it is to some of us. It is a much bigger thing. You can't read this without seeing the enormity of what has been done. It is a much bigger thing to God than some of us think about it. Do we really get it? Observe, secondly, that Jesus' definition of eternal life is not endless humdrum existence on a cloud. Jesus' definition is that of knowing God relationally, increasingly deeper with a boundless joy welling up, overflowing my existence, my hopes, my fears, my concerns. Am I living with one foot on earth and another foot in heaven? Listen to this. Words that have blessed me and speak to this point. Jesus, that flower of Jesse, set without hands, getteth many an affliction, and yet withers not, because he is his father's noble rose, casting a sweet smell through heaven and earth, and must grow. And in the same garden grow the saints, God's fair, beautiful lilies, under wind and rain, and all sunburned, and yet life remaineth at the root. Keep within his garden, and you shall grow with them, till the great husbandman, our dear master gardener, come and transplant you from the lower part of his vineyard up to the higher, to the very heart of his garden, above the wrongs of wind, rain, and sun. You will get no more but this until you come up to the wellhead, where you shall put up your hand and take down the apples of the tree of life and eat under the shadow of that tree. <laughs> These apples are sweeter up beside the tree than they are down in this piece of a clay prison house. I have no joy but in the thoughts of these things. You want joy? Your foot, one foot must be in heaven, even as the other is necessarily planted upon this earth. But if all your thoughts are horizontal, and that's all you see, and you know not the tender affections of your Father who loves you, and of Emmanuel's appeal, come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Oh, look upon Jesus and be satisfied. 
John 17. These things Jesus spoke and lifting up his eyes to heaven said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. Even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Let's pray. Blessed Father, how we love you, how we thank you for the tenderness with which you meet us in the face of the Savior. And not just his blessed face, but in all of his words and his deeds, his receiving the children with laughter, his washing dirty feet, his going to the cross where he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We love you, Father. And I pray that you'll draw the hurting one, the struggling one, the depressed one, the angry one towards you, who are the wellspring of love and joy, and grace them with peace. In your beneficent smile, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.